Hi, welcome back to the CIO Show. I'm David Binning, Associate Editor CIO. The education sector has been amongst the hardest hit by the pandemic, with lessons, lectures and whole degrees disrupted, put on hold or abandoned. Meanwhile, travel restrictions have made a huge dent in university coffers by blocking the usual flow of overseas students to Australia. But many learning organisations have stepped up to the challenge, deploying video conferencing, mobile and cloud-based solutions, as well as more sophisticated artificial intelligence, machine learning and other data analysis tools in quick time to keep students engaged and connected with their institutions and instructors. In fact, as everyone has been talking endlessly about the future of work, hybrid work and the so-called new normal, tech leaders in the education space have been quietly busy shaping the future of learning, which is also expected to be some sort of hybrid now and likely forever. Joining us now is Naranjan Prabhu, CIO and IT Director with the Australian Catholic University. Naranjan, welcome. Thank you, David. Thanks to be here. We also have Fiona Rankin, who's the CIO of Wollongong University. Fiona, thanks for being with us. Thanks, David. Thanks for the invitation. And also Louise Francis, who's the Research Director, IDC, across Australia and New Zealand. Louise, welcome to you as well. Thank you. Now, Louise, if I can start with you, IDC has done some fairly deep research into digital education, both globally and throughout um, ANZ. Can you give us a little bit of a, um, a rundown of the sort of headline um, trends that we're seeing, particularly over the last sort of 12 months, 18 months or so? Yeah, I mean, it's been a very interesting year in education um, around the world, but um, particularly in Australia and New Zealand. Um, I think that that one thing that we're all aware of is this, this massive shift to, to an online uh, learning model. Uh, there's been a lot of lessons learned along the way, um, a lot of successes, but we've also seen, you know, there's still a, quite a few areas where um, schools and education providers are really struggling to, to grapple with the technology and match the skills that they have now with the, the, that technology and digital learning as a whole. Um, I think we were talking the other day about hybrid learning, and this is the way that IDC sees uh, education going forward for the future. Um, like hybrid, um, hybrid working in most businesses, hybrid learning is going to be that mixture of physical education and digital education. Some people call it digital um, education, um, the com combining of the two factors. Mm. And like any kind of hybrid environment, it's going to be having the, the balance between the best of both worlds. You're not going to see an either or unless we're in this crisis situation where um, schools and, and education providers are, are forced into a position to provide services online. Um, but one thing that, you know, we've seen in the last year is there's been this rapid learning curve around online learning um, and uh, associated with that we've seen a uptick in cybersecurity events, um, issues around privacy um, but also there is a lot of concern around the well-being of students, mm -hmm. the well-being of um, the teachers and the teaching staff um, but also um, thinking about how do you how do you close the digital divide, how do you how do you create equity in this, this very digital environment? And it's a real concern and a real challenge for a lot of education providers around how do you bring those students who were probably already disadvantaged in terms of digital learning prior to COVID-19, if we're moving to this hybrid model, what are the things that we need to do 
to close that gap even further. And part of this is around the technology itself, but um, it is also around that connectivity. Um, a lot of education providers who I've talked to have said that technology and connectivity is actually becoming a, it's becoming a human right for students. They should have a right to connectivity. Uh, if they can't afford that connectivity or they can't access that connectivity, then what sort of an impact is that going to have on their education and um, that digital divide overall? Is it going to get worse? Um, what can we do now to fix those problems if we're going to this model? Yeah. So there, there are a number of areas that we're seeing um, new technologies being experimented with and tried in education to, to look at, uh, in this new environment, what are they doing um, to improve that digital learning environment? Uh, so Fiona, you and I was discussing recently about this um, concept of, of hybrid learning. It's really interesting that um, most of the talk since COVID has been about hybrid work and and the new normal and how things are now going to go back to how they were before. But it's, it's this the education sector seems to be in the midst of an incredible once in a multi, multiple century transition in terms of how students are going to be engaging with the teachers and courses moving forward. What have been your, your experiences over there at Wollongong Uni? Uh, it's a mix. Um, essentially, the view is, I mean, hybrid learning from my perspective is here to stay. Um, our student demographic are changing, our student demands are changing. So essentially we deployed a big initiative around oh, and made a big investment in the hybrid, delivering the hybrid technology capabilities to, so that we can deliver mm. um, multiple platforms to students both online and, and also in that. So it's kind of hybrid teaching and learning. That generally has been well received by the students, and but I think one of the key points to make, I think, is that hybrid learning and flexible styles of learning is here to stay. Uh, essentially, our student demographic is changing. Um, we've got more students that are likely to be working at home. We've got students that are starting university, uh, entering the university at an older age, that they have their own commitments, they have home commitments, they might be parents. Um, so essentially, they want it all, and we have to deliver to them that capability so that they can um, consume education in their most preferred mechanism and channel. It's, it seems as though, particularly in the tertiary sector, that yeah, the whole the whole model and style of, of, of learning is, is pretty much just being transformed. The old ways are, are probably never going to be returned to. Just staying with you, Fiona, and picking up on something that you mentioned, Louise, is this... Um, idea or uh, concept of student well-being um, obviously something that's really important particularly with younger students um, but you know we're seeing a lot of interesting technologies tools being brought to bear in terms of addressing that particular need within the education space sentiment analysis that sort of thing right well essentially it is it's part of the the foundations if you like of providing teachers and students expect it students there is much more of a focus from the students themselves on their own health and well-being, which is a good thing. Um, so, and you know, being a responsible higher education institution, you need to be constantly mindful of that. It's much more at the forefront of both the parents and the students and all the stakeholders yeah. um, involved in delivering higher education these days. Sure. 
And Naranjo, you and I have spoken recently about your deployment of, of artificial intelligence and machine learning technologies in within this context as well. Yeah, so uh, part of you know any analytics is to provide a good data insight so that we can make informed decisions, right? So with uh, being uh, uh, what Fion and Luis were saying, that's exactly correct. So the demands of students have changed and uh, different mode of uh, learning is here to stay as well. So we're currently exploring what those modes are. So if you were to do hybrid, that means you have more digital footprint of what's happening. So we are looking at the digital footprint in the current learning management system, uh, current communication and correction systems as well, and trying to also include a sentimental analysis based on the conversation they're going to have. We're introducing the chatbot uh, so that we can look at the way students interact, that we can do the sentimental analysis, and then look at how they all contribute towards uh, student engagement. Because one of the main criteria of doing a part is to look at the student attrition, which is very important for universities to make sure the students we have onboarded or enrolled continue to stay with us and are well supported throughout their student journey. So that's why it's quite important to see uh, with all these digital footprints, is it saying something and identifying a student at risk? If they are a student that, uh, identified as a student at risk, what is the type of intervention we can have that it can be supported well uh, and also you force the energy and efforts are, are particular individual or particular area when you are stretched for financial constraints so you need to focus on the right area and it is wide, uh, wisely used so that's one of the main criteria we're looking at uh, across the board yeah sure because of course students mental and physical well-being is critical but also students are your customers and this is like a core yeah. business capability really is that it's to ascertain you know, the level of satisfaction students have at a particular time. And David, don't forget, it's also in our interest as higher education institutions, the success of our students is really yeah. critical to us. So we've got to, we've got to monitor and monitor those metrics as well to ensure that we're supporting students to be successful. I mean, that's a core criteria for us at UIW at least, you know. Yeah. And some, something that I, I found fascinating also from our recent conversation, Fiona, is this um, observation that we had from a uh, the Future of Learning report, which is produced by the, I think, in collaboration with the UK Department of Education, perhaps, noting that we've had this fairly dramatic uptick in the number of women enrolling in STEM type courses, but remotely. Mm. Yeah. So the, some of the international studies are saying that um, the general women prefer the online mode of um, learning. Yeah. And yeah, the interesting and the great, which is really good news, is that they, they're taking more STEM related um, courses, which is fantastic. Um, it's an interesting, psychological question as to why that is but clearly yeah. women I think have much more trust they have more this general the sentiment around that report says that you know women have a lot more faith in education bringing um, equity and a whole bunch of things and are much bigger believers in the relative to men um, bigger believers in the power of education yeah. but it's interesting that um, coming out of the whole COVID crisis that 
women are starting to pick up these STEM, STEM subjects more, which is fantastic. Yeah, I mean, obviously, CIO has covered a lot of um, a lot of this conversation about gender balance in the in the tech industry. And personally, I think that's the most fascinating piece of data to sort of enter that conversation for many, many, many years. What are your thoughts on that, Louise? Yeah, I agree. And I think it goes a bit deeper than that. Um, I was talking about equity before, but one of the, the things that we're finding out from our research is that digital learning and adaptive learning in particular is, is bringing people into higher education who wouldn't necessarily be fitting into a physical environment. Mm. Um, so thinking about people with disabilities or um, you know, things such as agoraphobia or, or those types of conditions, it's an environment where you know, anyone who feels disenfranchised by a physical environment are actually welcomed into it. So it, it is a it is a mechanism for, for bringing more people into education, which can, which can only be a good thing. Um, you know, and we're seeing this starting to appear around the world, particularly as the technology gets better, it becomes more accessible, um, and we get better at using it. Um, because I think um, we, we're talking about all these technologies and that, but um, a lot of it's being done by um, circumstance instead of by design. And now as we take a step backwards from COVID-19 and just the pressures of last year, um, educators are now looking at how can we design the best online learning experience? What are the best tools that we're using? Not all the tools. What are the best ones we should be using? We enable any organisation to use any technology. We help all companies become technology companies protecting the identity of both workforces and customers. Connecting the right people to the right technology at the right time. Okta, one trusted platform to secure every identity in your organisation. Now, Louise, I, I noted with great interest one of the many uh, predictions by, um, by IDC is that by 2024, 40% of education will be taught by personalised slash adaptive AI systems. That's a pretty big call. <laughs> I think it's, it, it's, so when we do our predictions, it's always based on a grain of reality. So we look at what's happening right now. Um, and this is not just in Australia and New Zealand, but this is these are global predictions that we're talking about. And we're already seeing universities and tertiary providers around the world starting to use these technologies. Um, so it is a big call, but it it's, comes down to balance. It comes down to the right mix of that technology. Mm. It's not just having a, a robotic teacher at the front of the class teaching lessons. Yep. It's an integration. We call it, um, we call it co-education. Uh, co so you'll have the, the artificial intelligence or robotic learning or anything like that alongside um, traditional teaching methodology. So it's all about boosting. It's not about replacing teachers, which is when we we've, we hear something like that, we think this is about, you know, getting rid of teachers in, in, in schools and universities. But it's not about this. It's about this is what students are expecting from us um, as educators. So we should be providing these tools to augment education, um, not take away from it. Yeah. And of course, this, this is an extraordinary cultural change for educators themselves. I mean, 
if we think about how university, I lived in Oxford many years ago, for instance, which was founded in around 800 years ago. And the university space, well, the style of teaching, and, and for a lot of teachers, there's, there's a fair, fair degree of kind of performance, I suppose, as well. Mm. And so, you know, Fiona, I wonder what your sort of feedback is from some, some of your colleagues about their anticipating a very dramatic transition in terms of how they deliver education, how they interact with their students. But it's it's challenging. It's it's a it's a big challenge, and it's a major organisational change shift for for the academics for the teachers. It's hard. It's essentially hard. They're having to, in some cases, they're dealing with students in the classroom. They're dealing with students, on, and then they're having to engage as well with the students online. And then on top of that, that inevitably happens, they've got problems with their technology, so they're trying to get onto the service desk. And the way they've sort of, some of them have explained it to me, some of the champions are leading this um, cause. It's, it's, an, it's a major organisational change shift, and we need to support academics and teachers in general with, you know, an uplift in digital, in digital education and, and capabilities. We need to work out better ways that we can support them. We need to work out ways how the, the technology truly enables and supports them rather than inhibits them and gets in the way. Mm-hmm. And that's an ongoing process. And to Louise's point about some of the um, automated tools, um, I agree with her in the sense that that the um, automated teaching won't replace teachers, but they're going to be phenomenal Areas, another area is in the areas of supporting teachers. So if a, child, if a particular student is struggling in the classroom, that tool could actually help sort their problems and rather than distract the, the teacher from um, having to spend one-on-one time with a particular individual, particularly if that um, student has some sort of disability. Have you seen much of that, Louise? Yeah, it's definitely, and that prediction in particular is, is about addressing those types of challenges. And, and I think just the, the pace of change in, in technology and education, um, being able to, to support those who, it creates a, a level of personalization for students that we can't do in a classroom with a single um, person at the front of the class teaching the class. It is about making sure that you you create that that equal learning experience in the classroom. And you, you're right; it's about you know it, it's about that that augmented teaching rather than replacing the teachers. Yeah, I was um I was actually speaking to Kerry Campbell recently, who's the recently left Flinders University as, as their CIO. Well, she's still working with them in a consultancy capacity, talking about um, various digital tools, for instance, that might be able to um, pinpoint particular um, talents or, or specialities that students, talents that students might have or specialities mm-hmm. that they might consider that they had not previously considered just based on a sort of holistic analysis of their, of their results and, and, and what, they, what they seem to be better at. Of course, a really big story here as well is how, how te- digital technologies are facilitating you know, far greater operational efficiencies within education. We forget about how enormous a lot of, a lot of universities are, of course, the Wollongong Uni and, and, ACU, and ACU, very large institutions. What are you seeing um, in the next couple of years, Louise, in terms of you know, the, the, the capabilities that are available for 
these institutions to, you know, perhaps rival some of the smarter retail or more digitally native um, industries in terms of that, you know, really bringing data together and, um, and operating far more efficiently. Yeah, operational efficiency is something that we've seen across all industries at the moment, um, and particularly after last year, um, there's this real focus on how do you create this operational resiliency, and, and education is no different. We're seeing the same things, and we one thing that we definitely saw last year, um, despite all the challenges and everything, there was this real growth in the use of automation and the plans around how are we going to use automation to, to, to do that stuff um, and adapt very quickly and react very quickly to, to changes um, in the environment. But also it meant that they had that businesses had the space to focus on the stuff that was going to uh, create real value. And in education, this is about enabling educators to, to focus on technology and new ways of learning that are going to add the most value to um, the students and the the education um, system as a whole. Mm-hmm. So we we're definitely seeing that that focus on operational efficiency. And I'd be really keen to hear from all of you about what you're seeing um, in your own institutions around that creation of operational efficiency. Yeah, uh, that's actually a very good point, uh, Lisa. So we're looking at uh, automation uh, to help the academics and the faculties. Uh, because there are a lot of business processes. Uh, so with automation, what they're going to get is the, the quicker uh, quicker uh, uh, efficiency and also the uh, visibility of that. Uh, because currently, a lot of things are done through email, different systems. Uh, people have to wait whether it's a uh, recognition for prior learning and those kind of things, which has to go through many approval systems as well. So what we have done is uh, we have established uh, uh, multiple platforms uh, in a robotic process uh, automation is one of the automation then there's workflow automation as well so what we're trying to do is to manage uh, first to identify how the demand can come to a centralized place and establish an automation uh, center of excellence and that way you can assess because not everything can be automated so you need to find the right candidate and once you find the right candidate which is the solution you can apply and then uh, test it and release it it's a complete life cycle which uh, been uh, a document and we're currently going through that finalizing so that we can open it up. Uh, we've already done the pockets of uh, uh, proof of concept to make sure the test, uh, the platforms uh, work as expected and what were the right candidates to use that part. So that's one part of operating efficiency because, you know, like uh, university having the multiple uh, divisions, there is always uh, uh, opportunity to improve the business process uh, component of it. And coming to the, uh, enabling uh, academics, because each one of the academics have a different way of uh, teaching, and we have more than 300 plus uh, teaching spaces. That means uh, once it's time to build, they shouldn't be stressed out working into the different teaching spaces. Now they use a different technology, because some of the cohorts for the timetable uh, course might be uh, you know, smaller, like 40 to 50, both online and offline, uh, on campus. Some might be huger. So that means the technology will differ walking into those sessions. And we also have a lot of sessional staff who come in for a short time for teach and then go. That means they wouldn't have understood the uh, technological changes. Uh, so they won't have, you know, it's also the different way of speaking to the camera to uh, come speaking to the student. Now we're making it more complex. That means they need to be mindful of 
people online are not, not neglected while they're teaching for a, students who are on campus or in the class. So those are some of the challenges we are currently doing the uses to make sure we define different set of standards to accommodate different way, different kinds of pedagogy. And that way, uh, that can be timetabled properly. And then we can provide the information before and online. So we try trying to do the 360 degree photos of all the teaching space. So before you go to the classroom, you can see literally, does it have a whiteboard? Does it have a projector? Does it have a, uh, you know, multiple uh, things to do the active learning so that they can see that. And also we try to include a small two minute quick video so that they can have a look at it. So in that way, they know the technology they're gonna operate in that particular room. And then uh, they also can be comfortable uh, in terms of seating, location and other stuff. So those are some of the things we have done in the meeting room spaces. Now we're expanding that into teaching spaces. So some of those events, we, we need to bring it forward. Yeah. Um, you know, all of these things are only be effective only if it's adopted well, because technology is there. It's more about how the change management is managed, uh, mm -hmm. how we get champions, identify the true needs. And when you start doing personalization, where we cross the boundaries when it comes to uh, privacy and ethics, that also need to be... Uh, uh, taken into consideration. So those are some of the challenges we're working through so that immaterial of uh, uh, the campus, uh, uh, pedagogy, they can still have a good engaged experience, both for students and for academics. Yeah, I mean, it, it really is the mother of all change management challenges, isn't it? Yes. Fiona, you and I were talking about this recently as well. I mean, you, you had a financial services background before you sort of moved into education and you've been in the process of, I think, you're perhaps towards the the end of a very substantial digital transformation initiative that kicked off in 2018. How, how have you found that in bringing everyone along with you on the journey? Uh, it's been good. It's been very successful, and it's, but it's been challenging and there's been a lot of organisational change aspects which have been quite demanding, um, you know, which, which are to be expected, whether I'm in financial services or the higher education, it's, it's just typical. It comes with the with the, the territory when you do major large transformation programs. Um, from our perspective, it, it's very, in terms of the automation piece, it's very similar to what um, Naranjan and his team are doing. We're looking at RPA, we're looking at artificial intelligence um, across the standardised processes. I'm running a major program where we're looking at removing all the paper-based manual processes within the organisation. That's my mission. Um, How's that going? It's, it's going very well, actually. Yeah. It's going very well. Um, but it's, it's, again, a case by case and prioritising which ones do you take out first. As I mentioned, we, as part of the overall larger strategic piece, we've been looking at some of the foundational elements and we've introduced a new HR and finance system, which is, again, getting to the holy grail of straight through processing. Um, we're looking at a whole raft of systems around the intranet, which I hope, again, improves engagement, but also improves processes and, and gets us to that to improve and enable those digital capabilities. We've been looking at relationship management systems across the board, whether it be from the student's perspective, capturing the student's engagement right through to the initial query to um, their graduation and alumni. Mm. Um, and also looking at the relationship management um, within the um, sector around, you know, how do we manage our relationships? 
which then ties us into our, some of our legislative requirements relating to foreign interference and, and issues like that, some of the legislative requirements. So we still have a lot of um, major programs underway, but we, we continue to make progress. But similar to um, Naranjan, it's not necessarily a one-size-fits-all. We've got to, particularly if it's out, even the RPA, you know, you might it might work in one area really well, but in other ways you might be more need more of a workplay tool. So it's getting those sorts of putting the right solution in to address the issues and to yeah. drive through those um, operational efficiencies. Yeah, I mean, for, for, for all you CIOs and, and CIOs who are not working in education, it's worth sort of emphasising that managing, you know, this often thousands of students, young people typically, um, there's, there's a huge mobility challenge and, of course, a fairly significant security challenge, as we've discovered, mm -hmm. a lot of organisations have discovered, particularly last year, the hard way, with a fairly sharp rise in ransomware attacks on um, academic institutions, not just in Australia and New Zealand, but abroad. What's your, um, what's your view on that, Louise, and what you know, should CIOs in the education sector be doing to shield themselves in that regard? Yeah, um, it's, it's quite a, a, a complex conversation. Probably we haven't got enough time to talk about it all today, but you're right that, that we did see, definitely see in the last 12 months, um, in, in particularly in very vulnerable industries such as healthcare and education, this, this uptick in, in ransomware and cybersecurity attacks. And we've always understood that the education sector and the healthcare sector have had weaknesses around their approach to cybersecurity, even prior to COVID-19. Um, but we, we know that there are weaknesses there. There is almost a complacency that because we're, we're in education, we're not necessarily a high value target. Uh, but a lot of the targets are around, we've seen some pushing attacks occurring, um, yeah, um, identity theft, uh, and because a lot of the um, higher education providers are involved in, in quite comprehensive research programs that have commercial aspects to them, um, we're seeing that, that targeting of large um, tertiary education providers um, around the world. It's, it's not easy. Um, I think yeah. the, the acceptance that there is a problem is, is the first step, as with anything. Um, and it is about approaching it, particularly as these new technologies come on board, we move to an online environment. Um, but the, the approach to security almost felt like the, the threat was coming from within, from the students when they were talking about security rather than something coming in and affecting students and teachers and um, the teaching environment itself. So it is a big challenge, um, and I, I can't profess to to solving that challenge right now. Um, there are more and more. There's more and more investment happening around particular tools that will help overcome these these areas. Um, the the adoption of things such as artificial intelligence and automation, but also universities and their own security, um, what they're doing around secure cybersecurity and uh, effective ways to address those areas is something I think you know we could take advantage of as well. Yeah. So um, yeah. So I don't know what um, Fiona and Narinjan um, think about this, but that's from our perspective. That's what we're seeing. Stay, staying with that theme about you know managing students on the edge, I notice also that 
um, IDC has predicted that 5G is going to be a really important technology in the education space going forward, Louise. Yeah, um, it, it is. It's still pretty much early days yet. Um, there's a few uh, areas where we're seeing um, pilots occurring about how you use that technology. Anything like uh, anything that requires that latency um, is going to be really important. Um, it is um, a way of overcoming some of the challenges around slow internet access uh, in some areas, particularly in that high research environment that we see. Um, so again, early days, um, and we'll probably watch the space and see what's happening um, going forward. We are doing quite a bit of research around 5G at the moment, and looking at those use cases. I just completely concur with uh, Louise. I think 5G is going to be a real game changer for the higher education system. I think it's going to be, I think it's going to be fantastic. And I, to Louise's point, I do hope it helps um, minimise the digital divide, but it's going to encourage a whole bunch of collaboration, whether it's between researchers and industry. Um, it's, it's just, you know, and the capabilities that will enable the academics and the teachers, I do will do for them. I think it's going to be a major game changer for the higher education systems, um, sector is my, my I'm, I'm with Louise. So I look forward to IDC's future research on that and some further case studies. I think it's oh, yeah. going to be really, really, um, really help us to think outside the box mm. as a sector. Fiona, what, what sort of applications do you have in mind? Have you sort of thought about in terms of, 5G in, in the education space? Well, to Louise's point earlier around some of the augmented teaching capabilities in the, those things in the classroom and um, some of the case studies I've been looking at is really then, you know, if you've got a, a, a child or a student who has disabilities, I've been looking at that from the support function. Mm. 5G will really enable that. Um, some of the actual research capabilities you know, enabling that much more seamless collaboration between, you know, whether it's researcher to researcher within the higher education sector or researcher to industry or groups of researchers. Um, so it's really going to turbocharge that collaboration piece, which I think is going to be a really interesting, you know, interesting and in then how do we look at the new paradigm of teaching and learning? How do we look at the new paradigms around research, etc.? There's a whole raft of new possibilities that 5G will enable. There's, there's, there's long been a very energetic conversation around, you know, the importance of universities to have closer collaboration with the private sector, with industry. Do you think 18 months now after COVID first kind of arrived and Spain is on that academic institutions are better placed in terms of that, connecting, collaborating with the private sector? Yeah, definitely. I mean, the collaboration was always there with private sector in the last uh, uh, what this has done is the increase the collaboration because everyone looking at a different uh, chance of revenue, different channels of uh, digital learning, different channels of collaboration. So, so that has increased. Uh, and, you know, integrated work learning was always part of most universities anyway. So now it's more emphasis on job readiness in terms of uh, how well the current uh, courses are aligned to the market uh, criteria and how that can be I thought as during their uh, student life itself, so that when they come out, they are uh, ready rather than being only theoretical by establishing partnership uh, uh, to do the uh, you know the, the internship or projects related to industry or even the small uh, workforces uh, 
like what we call industry certifications, whether it's Microsoft, Cisco, and uh, are part of the course itself. So they're more job ready than before. And uh, yeah, so those are the things there. And uh, just to touch base what Luis was saying earlier about the cybersecurity, that increases the partnership because one of the things we are looking at is universities uh, by nature, they're very collaborative either within the sector or outside of the industry. That means there is a lot of data exchange between those. And also, the, because the graduates, uh, in terms of placement, they work in hospitals and uh, schools and other areas. So they need to be connected as well. So they all provide uh, uh, challenges to uh, security while in a collaboration. How can you still protect uh, your data? Uh, especially the amount of student uh, turnover within the university, there's a huge number of privacy data as well. So you need to get a good balance of that. I think yeah, almost all universities are running multi-year, multi-million dollar cybersecurity programs. So one thing to have a technology in place uh, and also the workload, the services which we consume, they're more, more and more cloud enabled. You have a software as a service. That means it's no longer this borderless uh, workload. It's no longer all your data sits in data centers. So with all this collaboration, industry partnership, uh, uh, public and private cloud uh, workloads. So the challenge is uh, humongous. Uh, uh, so that's where uh, technology and partnership will help. One of the important thing is with all this ransom fair is uh, they target the weakest link, right? So awareness of student and staff about cyber security, that's quite important. So though we put multi-factor authentication and other stuff, so that comes at a little bit of uh, sacrifice on the end user experience, but little, uh, even more is because attacks are becoming more savvy, more uh, social engineers, so they know who are the authority, how does our help desk email would look like. So it's uh, when people are busy, it's more easier for them to click and or share their login password and other stuff. Then you're basically mm -hmm. handing over your key, uh, no matter how secure your systems are. So those are some of the things I think are uh, being worked on. Uh, we also take a lot of security collaboration within the sector. We have a coordinate which runs a security operation center because universities are all different sizes. Huge universities have bigger investment, smaller universities have smaller investment. To have that equity, so the coordinate, which is a, a ICA forum, so they work with the partners with the external parties to establish security operation center so that we can all tap into that same information. Because we can, we can only be safe and everyone else is safe as well, similar to pandemic things. Sure. And Louise, just, just on, a, on a lighter note, one of the quirkier points I noticed from the recent IDC research is, or maybe not quirky, I thought it was somewhat quirky, is this increasing role of 3D printing to enhance learning experiences. I thought, yeah, my mind went into all manner of different areas then. Yeah, we, we are seeing that, and it, you're right, it, it's something that sort of actually stood out um, when we ask about the types of technology that are used in, in schools and universities and that. It's 3D printing that, that sort of comes up towards the top, um, yeah. which, is, which is really interesting. Um, so there is, there's a lot of, I think it's just the opportunity to, to prototype um, using it. We, we're seeing it, if you think about... Um, universities that have uh, are doing medical training and that there's, there's a whole lot of uh, research going on around how do you um, create uh, medical not devices but um, medical even tissue and that we're starting to see some sort of yeah. experimentation around 3d printing of tissue um, artificial tissue and, and um, thinking about um, 
experimenting with, with different types of devices you can create without going to the, through that whole prototyping process, which can be quite uh, protracted and quite expensive. Mm. Um, so I think when you think about um, K-12 type education, um, it, it, it's a good opportunity for, it's a fun thing for to incorporate into the learning um, and to get um, students hands-on in terms of building stuff themselves that, that they've created in terms of a concept. Um, so I'm, I'd be interested to hear more about how it is being used um, because it does keep coming to the top when we, when, when we ask educators in surveys. Has it appeared in either of your radars, Fiona or Naranja? Oh, no, I, 3D printing's kind of becoming mainstream. Um, so yeah. to your point, we have a very specialist research group at the University of Wollongong who actually does with 3D body parts Wow. Um, and they're looking at that. They're in a fascinating group. They're mm. really um, amazing what they're doing. Um, and then we've had a, um, a hub, which is also which is based out of rugby, allowing the Maker's Mark hub, allowing students to experiment with the 3D printing, et cetera. And even around the Wollongong area, I noticed, to your point, Louise, that, that actually it's now becoming mainstream in mm. primary school education, which we, I used, I have to assume, one of the argument why we had to actually introduce it here because I thought, well, if they're teaching it in schools, we've got to actually have that capability available on campus. So, yeah, no, I completely agree with you. It's sort of becoming mainstream these days, mm. isn't it, that people know how to use this, this technology and how to, how to adapt it. And I think it is largely outside the 3D body parts piece, um, it is more around prototyping and being able to experiment with things and, and get the spatial aspects of uh, 3D right and then and then you can either decide to go with the real thing or in some cases the 3D piece actually fits, is fit for purpose. Yeah. yeah, anything mechanical, anything engineering, you know, I think of the different applications that you could use. I mean, technically you could even go down if you wanted to look at, um, you know, cooking schools and that, you mm. know, who knows? That might be the restaurant of the future. Three D menus or the three D um, meals. <laughs> I don't know. The, the body parts stuff is really yeah. fascinating. What they're doing yeah. in that space. It has to, and it has to be so precise. Yeah. So they're quite unique. So it's really interesting. Think about all the applications uh, creating body tissue in a lab. Um, and being able to test uh, medical devices or medicines, you know, there, there's that whole range of opportunities there. In engineering school, you know, if, if they're doing creating models and everything, being able to create it in the classroom as, as part of the learning environment, it can only enrich uh, that teaching experience. Um, I, I talked a joke there a little bit about the use of cooking and cooking schools, but I think it, when you actually start to break down each type of um, learning environment in a university or a school, you start to see where the opportunities are, particularly when you combine them with other technologies such as virtual reality or augmented reality. And we're seeing that combination happening in medical schools where uh, they're, they're looking at thinking about using virtual reality or augmented reality and 3D printing as part of the learning about operating. So they're not operating on a live person. They're using this technology to hone their skills before we let them loose on a, a live human being. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Of course, you know, we're seeing digital technologies are going to play a 
an interesting role in in exams. Um, you know, managing exams. I think the word's proctoring, is it not, um, always? Yeah, it's it's definitely an interesting area, and we saw it last year during COVID nineteen, where where schools that were forced to do online exams. In fact, in the United States, it's still already happening. And, but this raised a whole lot of questions around how do you trust students to do an online exam? Um, but the technology that's being developed are around online exams and proctoring is, is incorporating tools such as artificial intelligence and, and monitoring. So, so when, when a person is doing an exam, uh, it's monitoring their, their facial um, reactions. It's seeing whether they're speaking to somebody, if there's somebody else in the room, uh, is their behaviour what you would expect from somebody who's who's doing an exam? So oh. I think there's a whole raft of technologies that's going to start to emerge as online exams become part of the norm. Is that what you're saying too, Fiona? Well, I think one of the interesting things about that is there's some question marks around some of the tools that have been deployed out there that really question the, uh, the whole issues around privacy. Mm. You know, you have a camera potentially in a student's bedroom, which could be their study, question mark, question mark, but is that an infringement of privacy? There's a whole bunch of privacy-related issues there, I think, which coming to the fore in terms, and particularly in terms of the adaptation of the deployment of some of these early tools, which haven't clearly quite got it right, and as a result, students are protesting against that, and rightly so. That's, that's a serious hot potato to chuck in this late stage of the conversation. Is that what you're finding too, Narendra? Yeah, very much with what Fiona has highlighted. So we have to change the platform as well. Mm. So we're not fully matured yet. Uh, so we need to make sure how the vigilation happens in classroom is very different to online and how we cover the privacy and also the uh, key capabilities. Because if you make it democratized and every student can have that kind of capability in laptop or the desktop, because we need to make sure that properly invigilate. And also the uh, commercial model for invigilation in a one-to-one costs a lot where if you had a in if it's uh, invigilation is done in the universities so you can invigilate more than 100 students in a big hall whereas when you do it on video so they're charging one to one so that means we have you know 35000 student plus so that means a huge cost for invigilation when we do online that's another thing to consider as well yeah and in some legislation they're actually mandating it like we've got um, camps in Dubai and they, they get that government sort of saying we need to be deploying that tech. So it's it's a really, really interesting area. So just, just rounding this out, we haven't talked about K-12 terribly much, but what, what proportion of um, primary slash high school do you think would actually have a CIO? Probably fairly low and do you anticipate that changing in the future? Yeah, I would say it is fairly low. Um, in the larger schools, yes, we're seeing it happen more and more. Um, in private sector and private schools in particular, they're probably the most likely to have a CIO. Yeah. Um, it is, I, I, don't, I can't see it happening in the near future that all schools, all K-12 schools would have a CIO. No. It's not necessarily the right fit. It's about... For that school, for their what they need, do is the CIO the right role? In fact, in most businesses, we're saying is the CIO the right role? We're seeing more digital, like a, you might see a head of digital, which is probably the equivalent of a CIO, or you might see digital learning um, officer, or 
there are a whole lot of new roles that are probably more appropriate to the education mm. sector than a, a traditional CIO. Yeah. And of course, a lot of these technologies we've been talking about, for instance, AI, machine learning and video conferencing are a lot more user-friendly now. So, you know, hopefully we'll, we'll see those technologies being brought in to assist, you know, arguably the, the, students, the students that have done it toughest perhaps through COVID is the, mm. you know, primary school and, and high school students. But guys, fascinating conversation. Really appreciate everyone's time and look forward to having you all back on the CIO show again soon. Thanks, Dave. Thank Thanks, you, Thanks, Thanks, Thanks for joining us. We hope you enjoyed it. APIs have been around for a long time, but over the past few years, they've become an increasingly indispensable tool for CIOs and organisations of all types. Forbes recently described them as the essential connective tissue that enables companies to securely and quickly exchange data and information with the outside world, with potential to improve business results by almost 50%. In our next episode, we talk to CIOs and analysts about the evolution of the API space, where they're having greatest impact at the moment, and how to develop the best strategic framework for maximizing their value. We hope you can join us.